everybody. Good to see you. Um, as Stephen said, we are, and, and have just read, we're looking at Acts chapter 15 today. Um, it's 28 chapters in the book of Acts, so we're just passing uh, the midpoint. And um, just to review, since it's been a few weeks since we've been in Acts, um, we've said that the, you know, kind of the outline for the book was given back in chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus told the disciples, uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as we've been going through the, the book of Acts, we've seen that that happening. We've seen the disciples uh, moving out from Jerusalem uh, bringing the gospel. Um, and what has happened most recently is there has been a great um, ingathering of Gentiles. A lot of Gentiles have come to faith. Gentiles being anyone who's not a Jew is, a, is considered a Gentile. And so chapter 15 describes what we call, what's kind of known in church history as the Jerusalem Council. Uh, it was a council of apostles and elders uh, that was convened in Jerusalem to sort out this controversy that was causing dissension in the church. It had to do with these Gentiles coming in uh, to the the, uh, the body of believers. Um, it's an important chapter in the Bible um, historically. Um, it's, it's been at the center of a lot of discussion about church governance. Uh, the Presbyterian Church, for example, uh, really kind of builds their whole understanding of how the church should be organized uh, coming out from, of this passage. Um, we won't get into that very much, but it just it plays a significant role in church history. Um, so what, we're, what I'd like to do today is just give you a brief overview of, of what happens and why. Um, but because the, the kind of the question of the Gentiles is not really a burning question for most of us, um, I'm going to try to draw out some other um, practical implications that I think are, are pertinent to us as the church in terms of who we are and what it means about um, who we are. Um, so as we begin, let me just pray for us one more time. Uh, Father, we just commit this... Um, time of looking into your word to you, and we pray, Lord, that, that your truth, your word, uh, would just shine forth, that my words would just fall to the side, and, um, and the truth of the gospel, the truth of the scriptures would speak into our hearts, would transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit, and may you receive all the glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, so what happens? Just a, a kind of a summary of what happens in the story. Um, Paul and Barnabas have just returned to Antioch from what we call the um, Paul's first missionary journey. Um, they were sent out from Antioch, and so they've come back to Antioch to kind of report on what has happened, uh, what God has done. Um, um, <clears throat> in, uh, in chapter 14, verse 27, it says, um, they came to Antioch to tell of how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 
So in their reporting, they're, what, the theme of what they're talking about is God is just doing stuff among the Gentiles. Many Gentiles are coming to faith. And just for a little background, you know, throughout history in the Old Testament, Old Covenant times, if a Gentile wanted to, to follow the God of Israel, um, it was very much possible. Um, but there were, they had to start doing the things that were required of Jews, which, in, which included uh, men being circumcised and, um, and keeping all the law of Moses. Um, so there were some in, this, in the community that when they saw these Gentiles coming to faith, they said, oh, okay, we just, they just need to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. It was a very normal thing for them to say. Um, we, I think sometimes we tend to think of these guys as, you know, kind of the bad guys, you know, troublemakers or whatever, but they were just trying to follow the teachings of the Bible. And, and they were, in a sense, they were the conservatives of their era. They were saying, why are we, why are you, why are we changing all the rules here? Um, I mean, after all, um, Jesus was a Jew, right? Jesus was circumcised. Jesus kept the law of Moses. Um, all of the early believers were Jews and kept the laws of Moses. So don't think of, the, of these guys who are saying that the Gentiles must do these things were, were trying to, to cause any trouble. Um, but what's the argument from the other side? Why do Peter and Paul and James um, say otherwise? And um, which Stephen just read through the, the passage, so I won't, I won't read through all of it again. But um, the, the point that, uh, that, that Peter, I think, is making, first of all, is that God is saving the Gentiles as they are, without them, you know, being circumcised and following all the laws of Moses. Um, in verse 8... He says, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Peter's point is that the uncircumcised Gentiles and the circumcised Jews are now ultimately the same in God's sight in light of what God has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, God has poured out his spirit on both the Jews, the believing Jews, and now on the believing Gentiles. And it's that outpouring of the spirit that is the, the proof, the evidence of God's approval, in a sense, of, of these people. Um, so, so Peter's point is, if God has given the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles without them being circumcised, the church should not require it of them either, uh, or should not require it of them. Um, and then Peter concludes his statement. He says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. It all depends on the grace of Jesus. Salvation ultimately is not dependent on the keeping of the law. Um, 
the next thing that happens is Paul and Barnabas get up and share, and it's, it's kind of funny to me that Paul doesn't give much of a theological defense uh, in light of the fact that much of the New Testament is Paul writing letters and kind of being the theologian of the early church. But in this situation, Paul is just sharing. He's kind of, it looks to me like he's just excited about what God is doing among the Gentiles, and he's just telling stories. He's not really trying to uh, argue the case other than to say God's just doing amazing things among the Gentiles. And so then James gets up, who is, James at this point is the leader of the, of the church in Jerusalem. And James gets up and he basically says, what Peter has described here is or was prophesied in the Old Testament. And then he goes on to, to quote uh, from Amos chapter 9. He says, after this, he, he quoting, quoting the prophet, he says, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things. Now, so I think James's point here is what was foretold by the prophets has now happened. Amos prophesied hundreds of years before this period of time, before the coming of the Messiah, and, and James is saying what, what Amos was prophesying has happened. We're no longer waiting for it. It has come. Jesus has come. And, and so we need to stop acting like we're waiting for the Messiah to come. Because much of the, um, the old covenant laws were simply there to point the people of God to this coming Messiah. Okay? Uh, the temple laws and the... Um, the, the priesthood and all these things, the sacrificial system were all pointers. They were signs pointing to the coming of Jesus, coming of the Messiah. But now that Jesus has come, there was no longer a need for these pointers. You know, when you arrive at your destination, you don't need the signs that are showing you how to get there anymore. And so, so the point of, the, of uh, James and the others is is these things that were required because of their pointing to the Messiah are no longer necessary. And so we don't need to bother the Gentiles with these requirements. So um, what they concluded was that they should write a letter to the Gentiles. And um, James says in verse 19 and uh, 20, well, let me tell you, it's interesting he... They, he suggests writing a letter and, and requiring four things, but notably not requiring circumcision. Okay, so four other things, which I'll read. Verse 19 and 20. Therefore, my, my judgment, this is James speaking, my judgment is that one, or that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Okay, let me say them again. Abstain from these things, things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. Now, 
Why these? Why these? Um, it doesn't say, James doesn't explain why he's suggesting these things, but um, I think, and I think most scholars would agree that these four things are all integral in the idol worship that the Gentiles of that day were involved in. And so what, what James is saying, what he's suggesting there in this letter, is that um, they were telling the Gentiles, you don't have to adopt all of these, the customs and, and, and rituals and cultural um, aspects of Judaism, such as circumcision and the food laws and the temple rules, all those things. But you do have to leave behind the idolatry of your former life. If you're, if you're following Jesus, you've got to leave behind those things that, that um, once had your devotion. Um, important to see here that these four things are not requirements for salvation, but rather are a response to salvation, right? Not, he didn't say, if you leave these things behind, you will be saved, but rather, now that you are saved, now that you are in the family, in the church, um, you should flee from these things that could pull you away from Jesus. So that's, that's kind of the story that we're looking at today. And, um, and that hopefully maybe gives you some understanding of why, you know, why as Bible-believing people, we read the Old Testament, why is it that we don't do a lot of the things that they did in the Old Testament? Um, and that decision was really, or that just the clarification of that understanding really happened in this passage. Um, but as I said earlier, that question of what to do with the Gentiles is not really a burning question for most of us. So, so what, what, what is here for us? What do we take home from this passage? And um, I, I, uh, the title that I gave to this sermon was, or is, um, The Church Mundane and glorious. The church is mundane and glorious. And what I mean by mundane is, um, you know, when you look at this story, the heart of the story is really about conflict. You know, it's, a, it's really about people who are not agreeing with each other. And there's, so there's this, there's a couple references here. Um, it says, um, I didn't write this down, but um, whereas I think it's in verse two. Uh, oh, I can't, I can't find it. Anyway, sorry, I, I'm, I'm kind of ad-libbing here a little bit, but there's several references that talk about the strong disagreement uh, between the parties in this. So our sense is, you know, this wasn't just a casual discussion, but people were really, um, you know, feeling pretty heated about this. Um, in fact, uh, this subject, you know, kind of carries on into the New Testament. We see Paul referring to it, addressing it quite strongly in, in several of his letters. And um, at one point in the book of Galatians, um, he calls these, um, the ones who teach that, that uh, the Gentile believers should be circumcised, he calls them dogs and uh, says they should castrate themselves. So... Paul actually feels quite strongly about, um, about this subject. Um, 
So my point is the church, um, in spite of its high calling to be the people of God, the church is in a sense mundane. The church is made up of people, of real people, with real problems and real faults and real character flaws that sometimes make us hard to get along with each other. Um, we don't always get along. Uh, we sometimes step on each other's toes. We sometimes offend each other, sometimes accidentally, and sometimes on purpose because we're sinners and we're selfish and, um, and we are in process. Um, to put it bluntly, we're kind of a mess. Uh, in fact, the, in the, in the, the uh, passage that James quotes from Amos, we are called ruins. You ever thought of yourself as ruins? Well, that's who we are. That's what, that's what the Bible calls us, ruins. But ruins being rebuilt into a glorious temple. Um, but anyway, I love how the Bible is very honest about the weakness, the weaknesses of even the leaders of the church, even the apostles um, and, the, and the early disciples. You know, that when we read through the Gospels, we read over and over again about just the dumb things that the disciples do, the dumb things that Peter says. And the other disciples, you know, vying for who gets to sit at the right hand of God and so many other things. Uh, the disciples are always making fools of themselves. Um, but this is, you know, ultimately the great message of the gospel is that it's ultimately not about us. It's about what Jesus does for us and in us. So here in this passage, we see the church in conflict. Um, but... We can learn from it because they really model um, a healthy way of dealing with conflict. And uh, I think for us as a church, it's good to, to take note of this because we will face conflict as we go forward. It's just part of life. Um, so just noting a couple of things, looking at what they did. Um, you know, first of all, they came together to seek a solution together. They didn't just stand in opposite corners you know, kind of calling names at each other and shouting that the other side is wrong. They came together to work together to find a solution, okay? Then we see them talking and listening, right? Just, it seems it's very basic, but sometimes we don't do that when we're in conflict, right? But we see um, the, what they model for us here is they talked and they listened to each other. Um, and then ultimately... They let the scripture be their final authority. They looked at the scriptures together to see what the scripture had to say about this question that they were facing. And when they, when they found that, um, then they agreed on what, you know, how to understand the situation they were in and how to move forward. So um, I think there's some really helpful, you know, um, patterns there to think about. Um, and finally, I'll just say, um, they also noticed, I think, that they were ruins, as I mentioned a minute ago. Um, I think for healthy community life, it is important for us to realize that we are all rubble. We're all 
process, being sanctified, being made more like Jesus, but none of us have gotten there yet. And so in, in conflict resolution, you have to start with humility. You have to come at it with a willingness to say, you know, I may be wrong here. Um, and, and be willing to be shown that you're wrong and be willing to admit it. Um, you know, it's do you, do you know anybody who's always right? I mean, I know people who think they're always right. They're not always right. But do you know, do you know anybody who thinks they're always right? And do you know how hard it is to get along with those people? It's really hard. So getting along, having healthy community really starts with an attitude of, of humility, recognizing that we are ruins. Um, and then uh, the second thing that I, in terms of the title of the sermon, I said the church is mundane, but it's also glorious. It's also glorious. And it's important for us to hang on to that promise, that understanding of our identity. Um, the, in Amos's words, his prophecy, it says that the church is the temple. Okay, I don't know if you see it there, but it says, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. Well, the tent of David is a reference to the temple. Okay, to the temple of uh, the Old Testament, the first temple. So let's talk a minute about temples, because we don't really, you know, as Americans, we don't really understand temples. We don't, you know, we don't live with temples, right? There are parts, there are places in the world where there are temples around and people have some kind of a concept of what they are. Uh, we don't really have temples. Uh, I mean, you see some churches that are called temple this or that, or sometimes synagogues. But, um, but our understanding, our familiarity with temple is pretty limited. I think for most of us, when we think of a temple, you know, it feels like it's a strange place. You know, people there kind of wearing funny clothes. Uh, they're doing strange things. Uh, sometimes sacrifices are happening um, or whatever, different rituals and things that we don't understand. So when we think of our, our I think our first um, thought when we think of temple is this weirdness, strangeness. But... In the ancient world, in the time of Jesus and before, um, the people understood that the significance of temple is that it is the place where heaven and earth come together. The temple is the place where, where God comes to meet man. The temple is a place where God's presence is, is shown in the most clear way of anywhere on the earth. Um, it's a place where man meets God. Obviously, we know from the Bible that you know, God's presence is not confined to a temple. God is omnipresent. But the temple still, even in the Old Testament, the temple, the temple symbolized God's presence. Um, and God, you know, giving to the Israelites his presence in the tabernacle and in the temple was a sign of God's blessing, um, God's presence with his people. So James 
says that Amos is talking about the church when he talks about David's tent that's going to be rebuilt. Um, so this idea of the temple and the church come together. This, this, this idea, I think the first time it really was brought out, maybe it was earlier, but in the New Testament, um, Jesus really makes this declaration in Matthew chapter 16. Um, and just a little bit of background there, you know, God gave two promises to David about a thousand years before the coming of Jesus. God gave David two promises. One was that his son would build the temple. And the second was that his son would reign forever. Okay? So when Jesus comes along about a thousand years after David, um, there has not been a son of David sitting on the throne for over 600 years. And the temple where they're worshiping is not the original one, and it is, in fact, much less than what the original temple was and what the temple was supposed to be. So the, so the people were waiting for a Messiah. They were hoping and praying and waiting for the Messiah to come and to rebuild the temple, to reign over them in righteousness. That was the expectation of the coming Messiah. And so in Matthew 16, we get this passage where, you know, Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say a prophet, some say um, Elijah, some say John the Baptist has been raised. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, for the first time, for the first time that uh, the disciples say this, Peter says, you are the Messiah. We read in our Bibles, it says you are the Christ, but Christ is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Peter says, you are the Messiah the son of the living God. And, and then Jesus says, you're right, Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. When Jesus has been identified as the Messiah and he starts talking about building something, he's supposed to be talking about building the temple, but he doesn't say temple. He says, I will build my church. And the New Testament follows up with the idea of Paul several times and Peter essentially um, agreeing that the church is now the eternal temple of God. The church is now the place where God's presence dwells on the earth. The church is the place where the presence of God is known and seen to those in the world around us. So, so the church is mundane in that we have all kinds of problems but the church is also glorious because we are the temple of God. We are the place where God dwells on the earth, the place where heaven and earth come together. Um, you know, in the, old, in, the, in the Old Testament, when um, the tabernacle was completed, the very last thing that happened was the cloud came and filled the tabernacle. Right, and then later on, when the when the temple was built, when it was completed, and they prayed for it, the cloud came and filled the the temple. In the New Testament, 
we see after the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to heaven, the cloud comes on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and fills the new temple, the temple that we continue to live in to this day. And as we read through the book of Acts, it's that, you know, in Acts chapter 10, where Peter is preaching to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit comes and falls on, on the Gentiles. And that's why Peter says here, he says, God makes no distinction between them and us, but he has given them the Holy Spirit as he has to us. God has filled the temple where the, where the Gentiles are with his Holy Spirit. And therefore, we are all in the same temple together. Um, so just my, well, make a couple last points. I know we're about out of time, but the church is, is the temple of God in community, right? When Jesus said, I will build my church, he wasn't talking about just saving a bunch of individual people. The church means the people of God. The, the Greek word there means assembly or, the, or gathering. So when Jesus said, I will build my church, he basically said, I will build my community. Remember when the disciples asked Jesus to pray, he said, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. Right? He didn't say, you should each pray my Father. He said, when you pray, pray our Father. Because we come to God as a community. Um, and when we do community together and we manifest love and grace and forgiveness and problem solving and conflict resolution together, we demonstrate the love and grace and forgiveness of God. So the church is glorious in its identity as a people of God. And just um, quickly, the church is glorious in its purpose. Um, in that quote from Amos, um, it, he says, After this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. That, you know what that, that is there for? That is the purpose clause, right? Why is God doing this thing? That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. That the Gentiles who are called my, by my name may seek the Lord. There's a reason why Jesus is doing this, is building his temple. And that is um, not just so we can sit around and enjoy being together, being a community, although there's nothing wrong with being a community and enjoying that. But Jesus is building his church so that all may know him. All may know him. The remnant of mankind, Amos says. All the Gentiles. That's why this church, First Baptist Church of Salem, is all about missions. You know, I love the fact that at our, our, our heart blood and our, our roots, all about missions. Adoniram Judson understood that the purpose of the church was not merely to know God's presence, but, but was to make God's presence known. That's why he left the comfort of Salem, Massachusetts to go to Burma to tell people about the God who loved them so much that he sent his son to pay for their sins. So we're honored to follow in his footsteps. Um, yeah, so just in conclusion, the church, 
is mundane and glorious. Full of real people with real problems, but being built into a glorious temple that displays the love and beauty of God as we love one another and forgive one another when we, when we fail, when we sin. And I just want to say, if you're here today or even with us through video, that invitation is for you as well. If you're not already part of the community of faith, the family of God, that invitation to be part of this glorious temple that Jesus is building, you're invited. You're invited. That invitation is there. All you have to do is recognize that you are ruins, right? That you're rubble in need of being rebuilt into something beautiful. All you have to do is come to Jesus with empty hands. Ask him to forgive your sins. Ask him to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And he will do that. He will make you into a new creature. He will take your life of rubble and shape it into a beautiful place for the presence of God and bring you into a community that is striving together to to know and make known the presence of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, both just the um, simple mundaneness of the church Lord, we, we gather together and we're just a bunch of real people, broken people in many ways, failures and, and uh, unable to live up to um, all that you might want of us. And yet we come as joyous members of this company of the redeemed who have been saved by the blood of Jesus and who are being built into this glorious temple through which you are bringing your gospel and your glory to the world. We pray that you would use us to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.